Hey, Peace Nicks. My guest today is Maya Solovitz. She is a journalist and contributing opinion writer at New York Times, and she is a New York Times bestselling author who focuses on science, public policy, and addiction treatment. Her latest book is called Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. Her book is available on Audible for those of you who prefer to listen in your car on your way to work, or you can get the hardcover, which is available now. I highly recommend this book if you're interested in the things we talk about on this podcast. And if you're listening, then I assume you are. You know you have an extra credit on Audible right now. Get the book. I know this sounds like an ad. I get no kickbacks. But Maya took the time out of her day to talk with me, and it's the least I can do. She did a great job on this book, and it's it's a very important book. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed having her on Undoing Drugs, Maya Solovitz. How are you? I'm good. How are you? All right. So Maya, thank you so much for doing this. This is really, really I'm, I'm so happy that you're on this podcast. Oh, sure. Happy to do it. Yeah. I um, So I, I bought your book um, and then I realized you were on um, Audible and I have not done one on Audible yet. So I got on Audible as well and I've kind of did a little bit of both. And I that was uh, really, really great work. And um, you know, when I started this podcast, I was really looking forward to interviewing authors and uh, it's uh, really actually been a sort of a tragic week. Um, you, you know about David poses. Yeah, no, it's he, terrible. He was my first author guest and I was so oh. happy to have him just uh, about two months ago. And so he was, uh, but his work, you know, it will live on and that's the same kind of work you're doing harm reduction. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really sad. It really is. So, and you know, I'm not sure what happened. Can't talk about any of that because we don't we don't know. But yeah. So um so so harm reduction is um and you know David poses you know he fought for the idea of well he he wanted he thinks heroin should be legal the same way alcohol should and it's a very radical idea for most and it's a hard one for us to wrap our heads around because it's been so. What is that? Oh, that's letting me know that this has begun. <laughs> Does it every time? Um. Yes, it, I um, when when I started the podcast, I had really uh, I had the same kind of attitude towards opiates. Also, that you needed to get off of because I had an opiate addiction. And one of the things your book uh, actually it was a an eye opening experience for you or an epiphany that you had when you went to uh, was Liverpool, I believe. And the doctor, you said that you were a zombie when you were on it and, you know, you weren't happy and then you got off heroin and the doctor said, well, what makes you think you wouldn't have been that without heroin? Right. Although that was referring to cocaine. Oh, uh, cocaine. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> but I was on heroin as well. Um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, um, I will say one thing, which is that you really shouldn't say something like he said to somebody who's in abstinence-based recovery. It's really rude. (laughs) But um, the idea that uh, my compulsive behavior pre-existed my addiction, that was absolutely 100% true. Um, And while I definitely believe that cocaine made it worse, for me, abstaining from cocaine is definitely the better thing to do. 
Um, uh, you know, it was, it just definitely was an interesting way of thinking and got me thinking. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and, but it made me think the same thing. Cause when I was on Viking and I, I was irritable, I was angry. I was, um, and I, you know, I was always worried about where I was going to, you know, when I was going to be able to get it, that's, that's a big part of it. So you say, well, if it was legal, I wouldn't have that worry. That's true. But I also, the, the irritability would happen if I had a huge supply and I wasn't worried about where I was going to get it. I still had the irritability. But then the question became that I never thought about, well, what would I have been without it? Would I have, would I have been just a happy, because when I quit doing it, I had to find other ways. I went and got an Adderall uh, prescription. I was dealing with other things that were underlying the drugs, I think were kind of helping me through it. Well, yeah. And I mean, this is what, this is the fundamental misunderstanding that we have about addiction. We think, you know, somebody's happy going along life they're you know, they've got all the things they're married, they have a kid, everything's great you know, they're a good student, whatever is supposed to be happening in their lives, it's all good and nothing is wrong. And then they meet a drug and become like a horrible, you know, they go out and mug grandmothers. Um, and that's just not the way addiction happens. First of all, you never see billionaires mugging grandmothers. Yeah, they may be stealing their retirement funds, but uh, <laughs> they are not um, out there actively, um, you know, harming people physically. And so um, why not? Because they don't need to, because they have the money. Also, because the vast majority of people with addiction would never do something violent in order to get their drugs. Lots of people stay in withdrawal because they just can't deal with um, doing certain things in order to get drugs. Now, people will do things that are already sort of on their repertoire. And if they've already been shoplifting, they may do that. Or if they, you know, um, already been embezzling or whatever, but it's it's just like it stretches your morality. It doesn't like suddenly turn you into a monster. Exactly, and also if you look at it's been a long time in this country, uh, over uh, what was it, almost a hundred years, but uh, heroin and these drugs were available legally, and at the time the doctors could prescribe them to people who were addicts. They didn't have these problems of uh, committing crimes because they were affordable. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think like that's really the important thing here. Um, we definitely need to acknowledge that there's a lot of harm that is associated with addiction itself that isn't associated with prohibition because we can just see it with alcohol. Um, but um, it certainly is the case that uh, prohibition has done enormous harm by giving a ton of money to gangsters and encouraging that violence because they don't have access to the courts um, and by um, making it really, really difficult for people who use drugs to get into recovery who you know have problems. Obviously people who don't have drug problems who use drugs don't need to be in recovery. Exactly. I, um, you know, and like you said, the, the whole idea that the black market's funded um, and, or the, black market funds the gangster uh, thing is also why we have so much violence in the world through the drug um, the drug trade and if you look at mexico what's happening down there is just absolutely awful and it's because of the cartel problem that is funded by an illegal market and that's another side of the drug war that i've talked a lot about um you know they had thirty-three thousand murders um it was 2000 and let's say 16. yeah no it's just it really is awful i think the main thing is we don't want Philip Morris fentanyl either. <laughs> you right. <know>? Well, <laughs> like, you know, we would prefer a legal regulated market, but the marketing of Oxycontin tells us that 
it's a bad idea to suddenly spread lots of freely available opioids into the population. And when you look at what happened with that, that was not about a problem with safe supply. That was about a problem of they were massively prescribing these drugs. Then they sat in medicine cabinets. Pain patients weren't the ones who were getting addicted. The people who were getting addicted were people who were curious teenagers or people who just said, well, let me try this, you know? Um, and that, you know, 80% of the people who misuse prescription opioids were not prescribed the drugs that they were misusing. So it, you know, we sort of have this conception of the opioid crisis as being, you know, oh, these greedy doctors addicted these pain patients. No, these greedy doctors um, were trying to help pain in some instances and were just taught, you know, oh, just you can hand these out with can like candy because nobody gets addicted. Um, the reality is much more subtle, which is that um, there's a warning on every bottle of these things that says it can cause, you know, problems. Um, and nobody, wait, let me rephrase this. Um, basically, risks vary depending on the context in which you take a substance and based on your background, your age, your um, history of trauma, your history of mental illness, all these kinds of things. Um, if you have a 50 year old woman who has MS and um, has severe pain related to it and has never had an addiction problem, her odds of becoming addicted are extremely low. On the other hand, if you have like a 19 year old guy who just got in a motorcycle accident um, and you prescribe to him, the odds of addiction are much higher simply because these risk factors, he's young, 90% of addiction starts before mid twenties. Um, he's riding motorcycles, which is a risk-taking activity. <laughs> he's male, which increases his risk. Um, so you end up, um, you know, you end up making claims about risk that are okay for one population, but are not true for another. And that's how they really, that's how they marketed it, you know, sneakily and badly, not by actually outright lying, because if you do have well-screened patients, um, the risks are low, but the vast majority of people were not, the, of these doctors, they were not screening the patients and they were not at all aware of how the risks vary over populations. Gotcha. Or they didn't, they kind of didn't care. They just took the advice of the pharmaceutical company and said, oh, you say it's not addicting. And it had to be against their better judgment. It's an opioid. No, How's it? The thing is like, they didn't really say it's not addicting. What they said was the odds of addiction are less than 1% in well-screened populations. Uh, you ignore the term well-screened because if they're not well-screened, the odds of addiction are enormously higher. They're more like 10 to 20%. Um, and so if, like I said, if you're thinking about prescribing to a 50 year old woman with no history of addiction versus a 19 year old motorcycle guy who, you know, let's say he was drunk when he got in the crash, um, you know, we have, um, very, very, very different risk factors. Now that doesn't mean that we leave the guy who has severe agony from the motorcycle crash to suffer. It just means that if you have to use opioids in that situation, you have to do it in a really controlled manner. Um, for example, give the pills to his mom, 
you know, right. <laughs> like, um, you know, you can't because um, for people who are at risk, um, exposure is obviously essential to them becoming addicted. Because if you're not exposed, you're not addicted to that particular substance. Now, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't go out and find something. Um, but at least you're minimizing this particular corner of risk. I mean, that is one of the dangers, though, is if, if you deny pain medication for someone who actually needs it, they could potentially go to the streets for it and find something much more dangerous. Yeah. I um, And there, we're denying people. Actually, right now, it's become a lot more common to deny people who are, are in pain the pain medication because doctors absolutely- are scared to prescribe it. Yeah, I mean, and it's absolutely horrific. I've been talking to a lot of um, chronic pain patients who've simply been cut off of doses that they'd taken safely for many years. And now suddenly, oops, we're not allowed to prescribe that. That's technically not the case, but it is in terms of if you prescribe over certain amounts, law enforcement will look at you. Um, So yeah, um, we have just, what we tend to do is like, we get very enthusiastic and we just you know, let opioids be all over the place, then there are problems and then we get really cracked down and then we harm pain patients. There is a balance that needs to happen. Right. And, you know, commercialization where you have, you know, buy Oxycontin today, it's fabulous. Or, you know, sending out cheerleaders to go to doctor's office with their little samples. Um, these things should not be allowed. Right now, they're still allowed to do the cheerleader thing astonishingly enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like they, you know, they're like, Oh, Purdue is this one evil company. So like, we'll just get the Sacklers. The reality is that what allowed this to happen was not just greedy companies and problematic doctors, but a system that allows marketing of addictive substances. And so you need to get like, for example, when you have heroin prescribing, you don't have people out there saying, come to my clinic, get your heroin, it's fabulous. This is the best place to get it. Um, What you do have um, is they're checking the people to make sure that they actually do have a habit and they're not introducing somebody to it. Um, And they are prescribing under controlled situations. Um, and so it is a very different thing. Like people just think, oh, legalization. It is like, you know, just doing it like alcohol where you have very little controls over it. Um, or they think that, you know, it has to be prohibition so extreme. We like, you know, lock people up simply for possession. The reality is there is a sweet spot in the middle. Um, and you uh, blocking people up for possession does not work. Um, but allowing marketing of um, addictive substances is also bad. Um, there are other models that we can use, but if we sort of keep having this debate in black and white, then we are not going to actually move forward towards effective solutions. I agree with that completely. And I, in the, the trying to figure out where that sweet spot is, is it like, a, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about it. I thought when David poses talked to me about heroin being legal, it really, cause at first I was like, it's not going to be just available at Walgreens. And he was like, I disagree. It should be. And it kind of made me think. And I was like, I, I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And, and I realized a few things. One is we compare it with alcohol, which is really a hard comparison to make because alcohol people love alcohol across the board. Most people, and it's a smaller percentage of people that love opioids. 
but they're um for me they're very addictive i think that they should be available for addicts but they shouldn't be promoted the way we promote alcohol also i think we might have messed up with alcohol out of, out of prohibition we promote it too much we make it look too cool it's, it's to where to the point where when i quit drinking people think it's weird they're like why aren't you drinking what's wrong well right, what's wrong right. with not drinking yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think like we in this country, we have an extremely unhealthy attitude towards psychoactive substances. We see them as being these mystic things that turn people into zombies. Um, and the people who are susceptible to being zombified are the ones at risk and everybody else is fine. And this is just not the way it works. Certainly, there are people that are higher risk for addiction than others, but those people do not get turned into zombies by the substance. Um, they have, you know, this is where it gets interesting and complicated because people with addiction certainly have impairments of their ability to make choices, but they don't have no ability to make choices. And we assume that they have no ability. So therefore we have to arrest them and coerce them and be cruel to them in order to um, force them to hit bottom and, and solve this problem. That is actually not how it works. People still have the ability to make choices while actively addicted. It's just their priorities are set in a way that prioritize the drug. And so if you work within those parameters, you can actually move people towards being healthier, which is how harm reduction works. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how I've noticed it with, with my addiction. And some people will grow out of their addictions when, they, when their life gets better. And for me, I was addicted to Vicodin. I hid it from the people I was closest with in my life because I was ashamed of it. But I quit without help. I, I, I realized I wanted to quit and I made the choice to quit and I didn't have to hit rock bottom. I just had to slowly gradually figure out the things to my life to make it you know make the better choices and um and that's what I've, I've noticed and I've, I've noticed with other friends of mine that have had problems too some of them will grow out of it some of them some of them won't but I think yeah. it would really help them if they had a place they could go and I think the methadone clinic kind of model would work for opioids if they said all right if, you, if you're an addict you can go to these places it's not going to be promoted and, and yay it's going to be you're going to come in here we're going to have free counseling and you're going to get not methadone, but the drug you're addicted to. Um, and the big one was Oxycontin. Uh, Oxycontin addicts, when they shut down Oxycontin the way they did, they should have said anybody addicted to this drug can come in and still get your prescription. And we're going to wean you off of it with counseling and help. And it'll all be funded by the pharmaceutical. Well, that's great. Right. To me, what was the profoundly stupid thing we did in dealing with this crisis, one of many, was when we shut down the pill mills. We had a list of every single patient because they had to use their ID in order to fill the prescription. Why didn't we put these, why didn't we immediately offer either maintenance on their existing drug or at least methadone or buprenorphine to everybody at those clinics? Like, and still we shut down, you know, bad doctors, some of whom were actually good doctors. Um, who are being, you know, accused of overprescribing because they're the only people who will take these pain refugees at this point. Um, and then some of whom actually are running pill mills and should be shut down. But you can't do that without doing something for the patients. It just makes no sense. Like either it seems like the people who had this policy in mind did not believe that addiction exists. So they're like, okay, we'll just take away the drugs. It will solve it. And it's like, really, that's not going to create a black market? Like, why would you do that without first preparing to help the people? It's just so stupid. And like, now we want to cut the medical supply even further. And, you know, it's it's just like, 
Meanwhile, 75% of the, the overdose deaths we're seeing now are from illicitly made fentanyl. Yeah, we cut, we're cutting off the medical supply right at the time when the strongest analogs of fentanyl are, are, are entering the streets and entering the heroin supply to the point where the DEA believes that there will be no heroin at all within like five years or something. It'll be all fentanyl because the, opi- the opium, growing opium is a, is a yeah. tough business and it's a lot cheaper yeah, to just why make. Why would you do that? Like, I mean, the thing is that like once you created the pressure for there to be smaller and smaller drugs, which are easier and easier to smuggle. Like, you know, if you can hold the New York City supply of fentanyl in your hand, Mm -hmm. you're not going to catch that. You know what I mean? Like, you know, how can you, unless you're going to shut down international trade, you are not going to catch that. So you've created the situation by driving things like heroin away. (laughs) And now we're going to forever have to deal with it as an issue of, well, this thing is here, it's very potentially deadly, how are we going to, you know, help people? Um, So, you know, right, like who would grow poppies if um, they can have, like, you know, you're growing a poppy, you have a whole farm, you have farmers, you have processors, you have smugglers, it's a huge supply chain. You got hundreds of people, all of whom could potentially rat you out if you're a drug dealer. And then versus like three guys in a lab, like who's going to like, you know, we have created the circumstances to make the problem way worse. Exactly. And that's the iron law of prohibition. And you have uh, if if 50 kilos of heroin equal one kilo of fentanyl. So you have a truck coming over border full of heroin or a guy with a backpack. I mean, that's the difference. Yeah. And it, it just it makes it just makes no sense to think that we could deal with this, you know, as a supply side thing, because Let's say they like do manage to get China to shut down their labs. Do you think somebody else isn't going to pick that up? Exactly. You know, um, it's just, you know, what is that in the background? Is the elephant? Yeah. That's the elephant in the room. (laughs) Ah, okay. (laughs) It's just like it has a very strange um, face. Yeah, it's a a big tapestry. I have tapestries all over this room. I kind of bringing me back to my high school days when I decided to do the podcast, I put a bunch of you know, lava lamps and stuff in there. How did you end up getting involved with opioids? Well, I, as a young, my, I did them first when I was in eighth grade, I think I, from a friend, friend's mom's pill bottle, got some Percocet, but um, I didn't you know, have any problems with it in high school. I, I did a lot of drugs in high school, mostly, mostly pot. Uh, Xanax was a big one though, towards the end, but um, opioids, Oxycontin became big when I, right at the end of high school, and it was popular with everybody. I did Oxycontin um, a decent amount. I never got addicted to it. It wasn't until I moved to Florida, and um, the pill mills were big down here, but also I played music for a living, so I would play shows, and people just had pills, and I would get them for free. They would just get hand me pills, and, all the, and, and for years I had done them and never, ever had physical dependence on them, and then all of a sudden I did them enough to where I realized one day when I didn't have them, I'm getting right. sick. Right, right. So, so there was no medical, you were not ever prescribed them legitimately um, in the course of that. That was all recreation, you know, quotes. I had tried a few times, like I, if I went to the doctor for pain for something, you know, I, I would, you know, try to as subtly as I could be, just, you know, ask for something. And I think tramadol was the, the strongest they ever gave me, but that would help with my withdrawals. Tramadol would. Right, right. Well, no, I'm I'm just like, it's, it's just like, I, 
I'm just so sick of this narrative that like, um, you know, you were an innocent pain patient. And, um, right, right. No, no, I was a drug seeker. But I also, I, I had a lot of um, depression problems, anxiety problems, and there was trauma in my past. And, and I just, um, I well, no, and I'm not like, I am not saying this to put judgment on people. Oh, no, I know you're not. Yeah. yeah. You know, but it's it's just more that like um, nobody's innocent or guilty in this. You know, it's a medical disorder, um, yeah. and and yet we you know create all these very racialized narratives around it because um, the white people need to be innocent. Of course, we couldn't have chosen this. All right, that, no, and, that, and I noticed that too with my when I, I got caught with drugs a, a few times when I was young. That's one reason I did this podcast is I felt the injustice done towards me. But then when I started studying you know, reading the new Jim Crow. And I realized how easy I got off because of the color of my skin. Even though I went to jail, I still had a life. I, I you know, what, I mean, I'm doing an actual special um, about the, the racist aspect of the war on drugs. And it's a very hard one to do, especially just as a white person reading all this stuff. But one thing uh, was mentioned was that black people sell drugs the same rate as white people. And immediately I thought, well, that can't be true. And then she was like, well, just think about the people that you buy drugs from. It's usually your own race. And immediately I thought about all the people I bought drugs from. I was like, how did I not even see it? It was right in front of me. It was, I was buying from white kids in my high school right, that were selling right. drugs that didn't have the risk of the DEA kicking in their door and taking them, to, carting them off. It's such a horror. And it really is a, it's a system designed to control groups of people. And they did it. To, and it started with the Nixon administration, who was admittedly racist, yeah. and did yeah, it for those purposes. What's what's astonishing when when you say that about like, oh, you know, they you couldn't believe that like um, blacks and whites sold at the same rates. It's like that just shows the racism built into the system because you weren't deliberately trying to be racist by thinking that way. Right. You were taught that. And like, you know, it's it's just and there's so much of that. Um, I mean, I. I hope that um, more people are becoming aware of this now because it is truly disgusting. Um, and everybody needs to know that the drugs that are illegal are illegal because of a series of racist and anti-immigrant panics, not because they're inherently more dangerous than the ones that are legal. Otherwise you could not have legal cigarettes and illegal marijuana. You know, just mm -hmm. look at the death rate there. One kills 50% of its regular users the other isn't associated with reductions in mortality. So, yeah, exactly. that is black and white right there. If, if you want and, to and like you say, I hope that more people are having these conversations, but I just watched uh, John Oliver's new special last night and he, about critical race theory. And it's like, that's what we're, we're talking about right now is critical race theory. And as these conversations are happening, school, they're trying to shut down schools from being able to talk about it because they don't. And also most people don't even know what critical race theory is. Carl, Tucker Carlson was talking about uh, this critical race theory. And then he, then he actually said on his own show, he's like, I'm not really hundred percent sure what it even is. It's like, well, then why are you talking about it? How did you not look it up before you did a special on it? Like what? Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, it's also like many academic ideas, very slippery um, because it's complex and subtle and nuanced, which is not exactly what television tends to do well. Um, you know, and um you know, when you try to define anything, it becomes quite difficult, but especially a theory that's been created by a bunch of different people, um, you know, and yeah. But I mean, to me, I just don't understand how people can read something like the new Jim Crow and not see the systemic racism and, 
or just look at the history of how these laws got passed and not see that, you know, and just look at the actual science of which is more dangerous and which isn't, you know. Um, so, I mean, I think like, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to like sell opioids over the counter to everyone. Um, I think that that could be problematic. Um, I also don't think it's a good idea to do what we're doing now and crack down on people and have, you know, limit medical access and limit access for maintenance and all of that. I want something in between there. I want something that has some limits, but not too many limits. And to me, that's like kind of the interesting thing about drug policy, because it's like there is badness on both ends. In the middle somewhere is a reasonably happy medium that does not oppress people um, and that, on the other hand, does not allow exploitation by marketing. Um, so it's, it's really, um, you know, I think I would just like to see a lot more sort of computer modeling of what these kinds of things would look like so that you could kind of play around with it. Yeah, and if we look at the pill mill thing, what we basically sort of had was very similar to what we have with the cannabis dispensaries in medical states like Florida, where you you went in and anybody could go in. They didn't have to have pain. They just said they had pain and the doctor told them what to say and gave them. And that's what cannabis is here. You go in there, they say, you have anxiety. They shake their head up and then like this, no, and then, Here's your prescription. But we clearly know the difference between cannabis and opioids is one can kill you and the other one can't. So, yes, so we exactly. can't. But the, also the thing is, is that they were giving uh, prescriptions for opioids uh, for these Oxycontins that were much larger than they would, one person would ever need. So people were going in and getting 250 pills a month, selling half of them to pay for the extremely, because they were also expensive and the insurance right, wasn't right. covered. Yeah, well, I mean, and and what's, what's to me so interesting about that is it's exactly the same thing that happened with crack you had this substance that was suddenly very widely available and you could either use it to escape yourself or you could sell it to actually make an income in a situation where there was very high unemployment and there were not many good opportunities. And so this same thing happens in in rural America with the prescription drugs. Um, And a lot of people, again, they're like, okay, we're not gonna look at those white people that sold them. Um, because somehow we managed to have an opioid crisis and massive amounts of addiction while crime rates in America went like this. So either we weren't arresting a lot of white people who were selling those opioids. That's part (laughs) of it for sure. um, You know, or, um, yeah, but it is, it is just like, you know, it's quite horrifying again, when you look at the racial aspect of that. Um, but yeah. Well, if, if, what if we had treated the pill mills instead of saying, pretend you have pain, we'll give you way too much medication and you can go out and sell it. And we said, come in here and say why you need it. And you would come in and say, oh, I'm addicted to it. And I am depressed. And they said, all right, well, here's your prescription, but it's just enough for you. And it's also affordable. You don't have to sell this to afford the prescription. Then would we have, would we have had less deaths? Cause Oxycontin did. I mean, yeah. Like um, the UK did that with heroin and cocaine. And for many years, they were pretty successful. Like, I mean, you could go, um, uh, a friend of mine, like he was, you know, lying to doctors to get stuff for pain um, and they caught him and they said, okay, we're just gonna give them to you for addiction. That was that. Um, And that certainly um, helped, uh, you know, him be able to have a 
much better life than he would have had otherwise. Um, the thing that's interesting about that, that very loose UK system where you just give people what they want, that did not cut mortality associated with the drugs. It didn't. So it didn't. Um, so part of this is because the people you're prescribing to by definition are gonna be high risk people. Like there are some people with addiction who basically are very, very careless and they don't really care if they die necessarily. And this is definitely not all people with addiction, but there's a subset. And that group, nobody knows really what to do with. But if you put them on maintenance, they're just gonna use other stuff on top and continue their risk. Now, other people using other stuff on top are not gonna do it to the extent where they're gonna say like, I'm gonna take, you know, I'm gonna drink a fifth of scotch and some, um, you know, 10 oxys and then I'm gonna shoot some Coke and then I'm gonna shoot some fentanyl. Like your average person who's addicted even is not gonna do that. Um, but so I don't, I mean, it, again, like you need to find a sweet spot where I think like, you know, the Swiss heroin clinics where you have to go every six hours to the place that is really too much of a pain in the butt, right? You want something a little less restrictive than that. But you don't necessarily want people, anybody just able to like go and get something um, and not have any control. So it's, you know, it, there's somewhere in there um, a better way of doing it that, you know, has some control so that you're really not like, just like giving people massive amounts of things. Because again, right, you get into that issue of, if it's just enough for you, people get a tolerance. How do you really know? Are they trading it? Like, you know, it's, it's really, um, so I think, you know, finding the ways to make the system the least restrictive possible for the least possible harm, you know, and that's, um, so, I mean, and it's interesting because like the old, um, you know, and again, the research is also not that good on the old British system. So it's possible that the mortality benefit was there, but they couldn't find it. Um, but, um, you know, again, uh, it certainly was the case that in the UK between the 1920s and 10s, when they first started that system and the 60s, that they had a very low number of people addicted to cocaine and heroin. It was not commercialized. It was basically a group of people who got their drugs either by lying to doctors or by robbing drugstores. And then of course the sixties happened and that system did not prevent the sixties, um, but um, uh, it did not survive the sixties as intact because everybody thought, well, look, all these people, all these hippies are now going to get their drugs from these doctors and this isn't good. Um, so, but it's, it is again, like there's lots of historical examples that we should be looking at more to figure out ways that work and ways that don't work. Yeah. Well, if we look at the numbers from the, when the pill mills were active, I think the highest number in a year was like something around 10,000 deaths from opioids. And now we had 60, hundred thousand overdose deaths. I think 60,000 were, were opioids. So clearly it's, even oh, though, yeah, no, no. well, I mean, I am, I am not in any way condoning what we've done or saying that our. Um, oh, I know that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's it's just like more you need something between a pill mill and a methadone clinic 
the methadone clinic is obviously way, way, way too restrictive. And the pill mill is a little bit too loose. So somewhere in between yep. there is a place where we can minimize harm to people um, and maximize help to people. You know, and I, I also do really think that um, prevention is best done by teaching people about things like ADHD and depression um, and other things that can just make you be an outlier in terms of your temperament um, and put you at risk. Exactly. And so, yeah. And so, I mean, because I, I do feel like, you know, if I'd known I was on the autism spectrum um, and that that was leading me to depression, um, you know, I'm kind of curious what would have happened if I had appropriate medication for depression when I was a teenager, as opposed to self-medicating and, and getting in this mess. I might not be an expert in this field, but I presumably would be an expert in something. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what we're talking about, right? Is getting to the root of why people are using drugs the way they are. And the people, like you said, that are willing to say, I'll do heroin and cocaine and what, and a bottle of booze all at the same time. And I, I've been that way in my life where I would smoke. I, I never really shot heroin. I, tried, I did that once, but I would smoke heroin, do cocaine and drink all night. And it was that whole mad to live thing. I did not care. But the reason was underlying. It wasn't because I just loved drugs. I wasn't addicted to those drugs. I didn't have to have them. I just didn't. I wasn't happy. So if I would have had a safer place to get the drugs, but the, if it came with counseling that said, you're going to be able to get your drugs, but we're going to sit and talk with you. I think if I had somebody to sit and talk with, I could have worked through a lot of that and not had that because I'm out of that now. You know, I grew out of it. I don't have that. I would never put myself at that risk ever again. It's it kind of make, I'm kind of shocked that I did. I look back at myself and I don't even know who I was as a young person. Yeah, no, I mean, it is, it is really um, quite astonishing. And I think again, I wouldn't mandate counseling, but I would try to have it available. Exactly. You offer people in because that is, you know, that is what harm reduction is about. You meet people where they are, don't coerce them, but help them recognize where they have problematic um, patterns and help them get to whatever they feel is the healthiest way through that. And that will tend to actually be um, eventually the path will appear and people will, um, you know, sort of figure out their way. And I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things that is just so sad to me about the way we currently deal with things, it's like coercion first, mm -hmm. breaking people, attacking people, arresting people, locking them up. That's the first thing we try to do. That should be the last thing we ever do. You know, we should be starting by meeting people where they are and helping find out what is behind, you know, what's going on there. Exactly. It was something you said in your book that compassion was lost on addicts. If they weren't humiliated, broken and shamed, they would not recover. That's the kind of attitude a lot of people have towards addicts. And it's like, that's not, it doesn't work for most people. I think they, if you were to ask an addict, if they came in for a prescription and said, just the simple question, are you okay? And do you want to talk? They could say, no, I'm okay. I don't want to talk. Okay. But just asking that there might be the person who's like, you know what? I'm not okay. And I would like to talk. If that's just opening that door, it could help somebody. I mean, instead yeah, of just well, I mean, that's like, that happens at needle exchanges and, and harm reduction, you know, programs all over the world every day, you know, um, people build relationships. And when someone is ready to make a change, they can just say, yeah, you know what? Today I do want to talk. Um, and I need help with X or Y. And then you have that trust already. 
Exactly. And that's the harm reduction is um is that's it's about reducing harm. And that's one thing I wanted to get into just quickly was or I shouldn't say quickly, there's a huge thing, but harm reduction, it's it's strange because when you you said that um giving the movement a name, harm reduction gave it power in Liverpool. But one thing that's happening here, I talked to Claire Zagorski, she's in harm reduction, is that she was told at a, giving a, a lecture or something that not to use the word harm reduction, that it was become t- taboo, that as soon as you say harm reduction, the conservatives are immediately, they don't want to hear anything else. I mean, again, this will depend, this will depend regionally, um, and it'll depend on when this was going on. Um, but um you know, there was certainly a time in the United States when literally if you were applying for a grant to study syringe exchange, you shouldn't use the term harm reduction. Like there was absolutely that. But now the Biden administration, which is not exactly, you know, um, fabulous on drug policy, has endorsed harm reduction. Um, and I think, you know, having the term is really important because, OK, what's drug policy about? Is it about stopping drugs or is it about reducing harm? Do we really care if people have euphoria or do we care if they hurt people? Personally, I don't think the government should have any business considering whether I get euphoria or not. I do think the government should try to help prevent people from being hurt. And so the idea of harm reduction is a real threat to prohibition because it says your goal is wrong. You know, your goal is stopping these substances. We're never going to stop the human desire to alter consciousness. It predates us. You know, cats have catnip. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea that, you know, you're going to have a drug-free world or something just not happen. So, okay, that means that harm reduction must be our first goal. Because if a policy is hurting more people than it's helping, it is not a successful policy. And that is what prohibition is doing. Um, and that is why harm reduction was so threatening to drug warriors and why um, the term became taboo for a while. But when you un- when you explain what it is, just like critical race theory, you see how useful it is and how you can, um, you know, and I mean, again, sometimes you're going to not want to use the term because it may put a particular person off. Um, but in terms of understanding how to make drug policy better, you can't really not mention it. Yeah. And I have no problem with the term and anybody who has a problem with the term, it shocks me. Like, what is the problem with reducing harm? And and it, it just goes right there. And you see, this is why it was so dangerous because right. Who can be opposed to reducing harm? And so then it becomes an empirical question. Does your policy reduce harm or not? And you know the tactics that harm reductionists use, whether it's syringe exchange um, or um, naloxone distribution or um, maintenance prescribing, um, all of these things are proven to reduce harm. Uh, exactly, and the idea that they're not readily available for some people. I went to our pharmacy and uh, asked about naloxone, and they had it for like one hundred and seventy-five dollars. It's like, well, most yeah. addicts can't afford that. That this, you know. Yeah, that, no. But um, when you said, uh, I like what you said about the war on drugs. We have to ask ourselves: Is it to prevent people from euphoria, or is it to reduce harm? 
And but then it reminded me of this. Uh, I think H. L. Mencken, I believe it was, who said um, the pur the puritan uh, puritan uh, puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. And there is an element of puritanical thought in in all of this, where they don't want people to experience happiness that's outside of the church. And it sounds crazy at this day and age that that no, would be a thing. But, but it, it and is. in this case, it's not outside the church. They don't want to, them to experience happiness outside the market, yep. outside capitalism. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, um, you know, God forbid that you should have unearned pleasure because then you're not working for the man. <laughs> I never you know? thought about it like that, but yes, 100%. So, um, right. So, I mean, and of course, the man will happily sell you pleasure, but um, it will come at a cost. Um, so, you know, I mean, I don't know, I do find thinking about all of these things quite interesting. Um, and, you know, it, I think it's important to be open to, you know, just sort of consider your assumptions all the time. Yeah, and um, I wanted to say this one thing. Uh, you defined harm reduction as a radical idea because it was a radical idea when it started. Radical idea that saving lives is more important than stopping drug use. And um, and I think that it goes with what we were just saying, but that is the idea, right? That we're, that we're trying to save lives and that's what harm reduction is about. And um, there's the rubber duck thing, which I really liked. Uh, oh, yeah, Edith. Edith, yeah, Edith Springer. Yeah, no, that was like, I was, it was really funny because um, doing the research for this book was quite hard. Um, and it took me a long while to actually be able to get in touch with Edith. Um, and so I was so happy when I came across like that, there was a tape of her training that was at the New York Public Library. And I'm like, yes, because I wanted to be able to show her in action. And there it was, you know, and it was funny because there were some other people I knew from the movement that were in the audience. And during that same trip to the library, because I was looking at um, their aid stuff, um, and they had um, they had some parts of the needle exchange trial, which I describe in a different chapter. Um, and I'm looking at these videos, and suddenly there I am, 23 years old. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> wow, that well, that's <laughs> that's crazy. Um, but uh, can you explain the rubber duck thing? Or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so. Uh, there is this song um, that is um, in um, Sesame Street history, um, and it is um, Ernie is trying to learn how to play the saxophone, and he's actually practicing and doing his thing, um, but he won't put down his rubber ducky, and so all he can do is squeak. Um, so, <laughs> so the whole, um, there's this whole great orchestrated song about put down the ducky, you know? Um, and so, and they're saying, but what they're saying to him, and this is why it's a harm reduction message is you don't have to give up the ducky. You just have to put down the ducky when the ducky isn't serving you. And while you're trying to play the saxophone, you know, it's not working. So, um, you can have your ducky after you play your solo, <laughs> But, um, you know, it's but it, the thing about it, and this is why it was so great. And this is like one of the many things that Edith did so well. It just made people comfortable. It's funny. It's really silly. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a good song. Um, uh, and, you know, it's it's just like they have this whole um, version of it with all these like famous musicians playing in it. There's like this kind of all star version of it. <laughs> It's very funny, but anyway, um, so yes, yeah, so that is Edith and the rubber duck, and she would use that to explain why sometimes 
people need to keep the duck until we can get them better coping skills. Um, and, you know, if somebody's like severely traumatized or whatever, they may not be able to put down the drug until they have found an alternative way. And instead of forcing them to give up the drug and re-traumatizing them and not actually getting them to the place where they will be capable of abstaining or moderating. Now exactly. we have a better way. Exactly. So um, what do you play? I play guitar mostly. Um, and my wife plays piano. Oh, nice. Yeah. So we play out on, out on the beach and stuff like that. What's the uh, name of your band? Uh, we just started a new project. We're going to be uh, releasing an album under the title Street Lights in Ghost Towns. Cool. And what what kind of stuff do you do? I'm interviewing you now. I'm sorry. I, I would say it's kind of indie rock is the best way to describe it, but that's such a vague term now. Um, you know, our influence is like Iron and Wine to Radiohead to oh, okay. that kind of thing. Cool. Um, and older music too. We love you know love the Beatles and stuff like that. Ah, right. Yeah. Um, no, I am a Deadhead, so. Oh, also, I, I like that. She's not a Grateful Dead fan. I wasn't a big fan until I read uh, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test and, and understood the Grateful Dead's history. And then I, you know, I think I went and smoked a joint and started with American Beauty. And I, and I feel like I, I connected with it at that moment. And I really liked it. Yes. And you know that there's a moment like that with me with my I don't know if you read my earlier book, but um, I was indeed read the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, um, uh, decided I wanted to, you know, partake of that world. Um, became a deadhead. But first I was like, not that into the music until somebody sat me down in front of a speaker when I was tripping and played like Dark Star into St. Stephen. And then I was like, oh, okay, I get this now. <laughs> and yeah, American Beauty is also, of course, really an amazing, the harmonies on that. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And I remember when I was young, I would go to, up to the mountains and we'd, we'd do mushrooms. And I was really into uh, like bands like Ween and uh, you know a lot of the different weirder bands that they were into up there. But Grateful Dead was such a huge thing. We'd go to these different houses and they would just be playing live, the live concerts on DVD of these. And I just didn't get it. I was like, I don't understand what's to like in this. And But this, a lot of music's like that. Like I'm, Radiohead's my favorite band. And I did not like any album after OK Computer forever. I just didn't like it. And one day it clicked and now it's my, I like, it's my favorite music. So now I'm, I'm at the moment really into jazz and I've just been like listening to everything and it's just great. That, that's great. I, I really appreciate jazz and I love seeing it live. New Orleans, one of my favorite cities. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so one more thing about harm reduction I wanted to bring up cause I didn't really think about it till I read your book was, um, that I practiced harm reduction in other areas of my life like i just started i cut out meat but i i, I can't be vegan I, I need meat so i've done only meat on mondays and the rest of the week if i have meat it can only be one meal and it can only be fish or a, a shrimp or something like that and I, I just did that because i'm trying to be more you know environmentally friendly and the meat industry is really the biggest impact negatively on the environment not just that what not the animals themselves is a big problem also the way we treat animals but the land that we have to clear to, to raise them so less meat is a much more sellable thing to people. And I'm trying to promote like, hey, don't cut, don't quit eating meat if you can't, but just eat less. And also it's a healthier choice. No, exactly. I mean, that's right. And that's a really good example of harm reduction. And, and I think, right, um, you know, with COVID, we saw that, you know, people are not going to abstain from socializing forever. You got to wear a mask, get vaccinated these days. But at the beginning, of course, there wasn't that. Um, and yeah, like, um, it's been, it's been really interesting to see how actually the pandemic 
kind of brought the idea more into the mainstream because it was such a useful idea for trying to explain that we are not going to eliminate risk, but we have to reduce it. Exactly. And that's what we do with airbags and cars, with helmets on motorcycles. We don't tell people, well, because because of the dangers of riding a motorcycle, we're going to outlaw motorcycles. We're going to say it, it is risky, but it's a, a choice that you get to make. But we're going to make you wear a helmet. Not in this state. We don't, which is crazy. To me. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, it's terrible. They call them donor cycles in the um, hospital. Oh, wow. Um, because you know it's just like the rest of the organs are fine um, horrible um, but that's uh, medical humor for you <laughs> but that is uh that is the uh the the theme of harm reduction that people i want people to understand when it comes to this, when you're saying we should allow people to exchange needles well no we can't do that because then they, we're going to promote people to do like what, one thing you said in your book that was the fear well if you allow people to to get needles then we're saying this is less likely that they're going to be hurt and which is going to promote more people to doing right. drugs because like, Oh, well, it's safer. Now I'll do it as if people are, that's the reason they weren't going to do heroin is they were scared of a needle. No. Right. Right. And now, now, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh yeah. No. I mean, I, I just think like um, the whole idea that if you, um, you know, that a kid's going to walk past a needle exchange and think that's what I want to do, man. Like to say it is to like, refute it because that's just not, it's just, no, that's not how things work. Um, and, you know, if you go past a needle exchange or any other place where you will see some, you know, very um, unhappy, disordered people um, generally not doing so well, having a place that's welcoming for them is a good thing for kids to see. It means yeah. we care about everybody, even when they're not in their best shape. And, you know, especially with the whole um, way we treat people with disabilities in general, um, you know, again, it actually doesn't send the wrong message. And I really don't think um, there is a single teenager or young child in the world that like went past the needle exchange and said, ah, my future. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And that's what David Poses actually said that he said when he said, anytime I talk to somebody who um, who says, well, we can't have heroin available because then everybody's going to want to do heroin. And he's like, I'll just ask him, well, are you going to do heroin when it's illegal? Like, well, no, not me. It's like, exactly. So who who are these hypothetical people that are waiting right, for right. it? No, well, it's it's and I mean, this is like always the thing in this area, because uh, there was a poll that was done, I think, sometime in the 90s. Um, and they asked people. You know, if cocaine was legalized, would you do it? And everybody said pretty much no. Um, and then um, remember, this is like the height of the hysteria around crack. Um, and then they said, would your neighbor do it? Of course he would. That's why we have to keep it illegal because of my bad neighbor. <laughs> you know, um, and it's just like, okay, so you trust your ability to control your behavior, but you don't trust anybody else's ability. Who says you get to be the judge? Exactly. And, and and also with drugs like cocaine, I, I've had friends that got horribly addicted to it. So I'm not going to say it's not, it can't ruin lives. But for the most, most of the people I know that did it, they did it when they were young and they did it a decent amount and none of them got addicted. And none of them do it anymore. It's well, like, I mean, it, right. That's the thing. The thing that is different with stimulant addictions in general is that um, if you're primarily addicted to a stimulant and you're, you know, over 30, it's just, 
it's really hard to keep up that lifestyle. Like it's just like you may switch to alcohol or, or opioids or benzos or something, but um, the constant like staying up all night is just not, you know, like you just age out of the ability to like stay up all night all the time um, for the most part. Um, and, and you just burn out. And if you look at the research on this, it's like stimulant addictions generally while they can be truly horrible during their active phase, that active phase, maybe four to five years, as opposed to 10 to 20 for the, um, you know, uh, uh, depressant drugs in general. Yeah. And that makes me wonder about the AA. I, I found it interesting and something I hadn't really thought about, but why is nicotine and caffeine, which are both mild stimulants, A-OK, but even some things as antidepressants, the, the, the people get shamed. Now, I don't know if that's actually an AA's doctrine with antidepressants, but there was somebody. No, not at all. And I mean, what's interesting is AA is way better than NA on this issue because NA basically says you're not clean if you are on any kind of maintenance, which is ridiculous. Um, but, um, you know, anyway, but AA says we are not doctors. If you have been honest with your doctor about your addiction, um, and they prescribe you a substance, we're not going to say that their judgment is bad because they actually have a pan in, in this pamphlet about this. Um, they actually say that they have seen suicides because people were told to come off their antidepressants. Um, so I, during my 12 step days, kept that handy to give people crap when they were trying to like, you know, tell people to not take meds. Um, and if you are a person, um, who, um, uh, has a, you know, any addiction, really any 12 step program will do. So if you're, even if your main thing is opioids, if you go to AA and you're on maintenance, you're not going to get told that you're not clean. Um, and you can participate as opposed to, so, um, you know, again, not orthodox, but my main feeling on 12 steps is for a lot of people, they can be enormous social support. And yeah. for some people, and this myself included, the, the steps, like all of that moralistic stuff, which I oppose enforcing on people were helpful voluntarily because if you feel horrible about yourself and hate yourself, and then you share all the things you did that were horrible and you realize that they actually weren't that horrible, it can help you feel better. Exactly. If somebody's into a shaming and humiliating version of that, that can be re-traumatizing and bad. And especially if you're, you know, like if you do the sort of four step by like some of the literature where they ask you for everything that you're talking about, they want your part in it. It's like, I am not saying a child had any part in being sexually abused. Let's just not go there. That is not okay. Um, but some people do. Wow. Um, yeah, I have a friend that was in, uh, in a, and he, uh, he was a heroin addict and he switched to Kratom and he got shamed big time for Kratom. And he just, and then he went and said, he saw one of his, uh, one of the people in there at the Kratom bar. And he's like, you know, but it, my thing is that Kratom to me is to heroin as caffeine is to cocaine. Uh, yes. Kratom might be a little more dangerous than caffeine. I'm not sure. I, I've used Kratom I don't a think lot. We, I mean, it does not. Yeah. I mean, I have never taken it, but the, um, if you just look at the data on the number of people who use it. And the fact that they have maybe one death that didn't have any other drugs in it um, related to it, it's gotta be pretty darn safe given that because millions of people are using it. Exactly. Um, now, yeah. again, 
would it have been preferable to be FDA approved before it's massively marketed? Yes, it would. But now prohibiting it during an opioid crisis, that is the dumbest thing ever. You're going to prohibit the mild thing that isn't associated with severe deaths when you cannot um, control the um, fentanyl. Yeah. It's just like, you're going to take away one of the milder things people can use instead. Like, no, that is just really dumb. And again, this is why harm reduction is such an important guide for policy, because if you take a harm reduction perspective, you're not going to say, oh, gosh, look, there's this new opioid like thing. We must prohibit it immediately. You have to say, OK, will that increase harm or will that reduce harm given the environment we're in now? And clearly, given the environment we're in now, taking away is going to increase harm. A hundred percent. I mean, if you were in, if if you were in a situation where, let's say, there were absolutely no opioids and somebody was introducing kratom, then you might have a more interesting debate. Not yeah. in this situation. Exactly. But anybody who's done kratom knows that it's, it is euphoric, but it's not the same thing as doing a per, even a Percocet. I mean, it is. It's very similar if you take a high dose. I don't, but I don't take the high dose of it. I take a small amount and it just it gives me a little energy. But um, I also didn't use it to quit myself because I wanted to be completely clean at first. But some people that I have a friend that's been uh, you know using fentanyl and different things and he switched to Kratom. And it's like, that's great. And then some, and then his family was like, well, we need to get you off the Kratom now. It's like, no, you don't. Don't start with just stay on the Kratom. It's going to yeah. keep you from relapsing. Whatever is working, stick with it. And then if you decide this is a problem, then you can you know, deal with that. But yeah, this whole idea that like, we got to just take everything away from them. Yeah. It's really stupid. And it doesn't I have to go shortly. Hey, look, you know, I was going to say we can wrap up because we, we really, really hammered in what explaining what harm reduction was. And that's your, your book, um, Undoing Drugs. It's a great book. I really, really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed talking with you. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we go? No, no, I think I think that's good. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being on here. Yeah, thank you. Good meeting you. Take care. You too. Take care. Bye now. Bye. All right, Peace Nicks. Hope you enjoyed that. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're doing, go on Apple. Give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, at the Peace on Drugs podcast. Go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe and subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you so much for listening. Peace. Out, 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 out. You pay for what you get when you align yourself with the full PM jet set.
Yeah.